I'm going to be, uh, as we continue our series this morning, uh, we have our, in the Apostles' Creed, we now come to a new phrase. It should become clear in just a moment what we're going to be hitting on this morning. But I'm going to be focusing on primarily a number of key points from Genesis chapter 1. In order to save some time, though, I am just going to read the verse, first verse this morning to give you an introduction to where we're going this morning in God's Word. But we will often, a number of times, point back to Genesis 1. So you should turn your Bibles there, because I'll point back to it here and there throughout the sermon. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This ends the reading of God's Word. There's another 66, 65, and 98% of books that follow that. But that is an enormous phrase. That's the beginning of the story. And unless you understand that God created all that is, you won't understand the whole story. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. That as we sung three times over this morning... And we have read twice from Psalm 98 of you as the creator God, the maker of heavens and the earth. Gracious God, I pray that we would join with all creation this morning, that our hearts would sing. That we would join with the rocks that cry out, the trees that clap their hands, the birds that sing, the oceans that clap. As part of your creation that worships you, our maker. Draw us close to your presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not obvious. We're talking about God the Creator today. As the Apostles' Creed said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. The doctrine of creation is an important one because you cannot understand the rest of the story unless you understand that God was there at the beginning before anything else, and He created all that is. Let me talk to you just really briefly. We're going to come out of the gates a little slowly here, but just a few nuts and bolts to deal with in regards to the doctrine of creation that I want to get out of the way. Then we can move on to some things that I think are a little bit more paramount for what I want us to look at this morning. But let me talk to you about some of these nuts and bolts, a little about the, the, the how and the what of creation this morning. Let me give you this phrase. Now follow this. This is, going to be, this is, this is kind of heavy doctrine of creation phrase. Each phrase is important. Here's what the doctrine of creation is that I want to hit on for just a moment. In the beginning, by the power of his word, God created the heavens and the earth by himself. And in so doing, he brought into existence all things. There was nothing that had existence prior to God's creative word. And the apex of God's creative work was man and women who were made in God's image. And God did all of this in the space of six days. That is a full statement. I'm going to run through that really quickly. Four things I want to point out real quick on the doctrine of creation that I just stated there in that phrase. First and foremost is this, is that God created by the power of his word. He said, let there be light. And there was light. John 1.1 talks about this, doesn't it? At the beginning, near the beginning of the gospels, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Everything came from the words. He spoke everything into existence. So all things, 
in heaven and in earth. By the way, the, earth, the phrase heaven and the earth in the scriptures is simply a phrase that means everything. Everything, everything, everything. Is what maker, the maker of heaven and earth means. And he was all created by the singular power of God's words. Second, what we see there is that God created everything that exists. There was nothing that was in existence along with God. But he created all that is. That means all the angels in heaven, all the earth below, everything was created by him. The theological word here that's very important to know is that God created ex nihilo is the Latin phrase. Ex nihilo, without anything. There was nothing else. Therefore, there was no tiny atom that was simply floating out in the nothingness that suddenly exploded and brought everything else into existence. Now, it's possible depending on how you interpret scripture, that there was a God who created a little tiny atom that then exploded, but it was all sovereignly ordained by his hand. You get that? Nothing that came that is in in existence, that has ever been in existence, was along with God. He was always first and primary, and everything that is came about by his word. Third, that's important to see there. God created man, Adam and Eve, man and woman, special. Let me read uh, verses 26 and 27 again for you. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Actually, I didn't read it for you, so let me read it now. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God, it says in Genesis that God created man and woman from the dust of the earth. There is all, all of creation which gives glory to God and which God calls good. But there is something special about man and woman. We are made in God's image. We are not simply well done, well, well sophisticated monkeys. We are something that has been set apart because we are created in the image of God. Fourth, it's important to see there, is that God created in the space of six days. As we see in Genesis 1 as well as in Genesis 2, it creates an outline that God created and does all of his creative work, all the heavens and the earth, all the stars and the sky, the light, the moon, the sun, the, the, the wind, the waves, the trees, the animals, and all of humanity he created in six days. Six days, in the space of six days. Now, let me just briefly address that real quickly. Because this point has distracted Christians for the better part of 150 years. And has gotten us off the point of what Genesis 1 is about. The scriptures clearly say that God created the earth in six days. But what kind of days is the question. What has happened in the last 150 years is that Christians have found themselves constantly responding to evolutionary biology... And a a view of the earth that came about without gods. Now we rightly and should respond to that. But what's interesting is people who now look at the scriptures, they now look at science and some science says that this is an old earth and some scientists say this is a young earth. I am not, that's not my realm. That's not my realm. My realm was the scriptures. And and there are many people, well-meaning, good Christians, who understand Genesis 1 and 2 really, really well who have debates over actually what the scriptures say. So for those of you that are necessary, there's those who are in the camp that say this is a clear six days, 24 hours, and specifically is what we mean by a day. 
That could be the case. That could be the case. Much of the denomination that this church belongs in, that's what they believe. But there's other places in the scriptures when it talks about a day, actually can mean an age. There is actually good reason for some other people to hold that there is, this is a, we may not be on the youngest earth ever. And we should not look at those people as if they're simply kowtowing to science. Did you know that most Christians, most Christian theologians, used to think that the earth was the center of the universe? They, you know why? Because they got that from scripture, from some psalms. Because of the way in poetic language it's written. But hey, Copernicus came along, and he determined that things are a little bit different scientifically. And so you know what they had to do? They went back to the scriptures and they said, oh, look, we have this information. We're going to reread the scripture. And it's not that we're going to kowtow to science, but we go back in and we look at it and we say, oh, maybe our interpretation was wrong. I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying is there's different ways to look at the six days, the space of six days. But we do know that God sovereignly created all things. Everything that has happened is done by his providential hands. There's nothing that's out of his control. There's nothing that came into being that was not brought into being by him. Now here's, here's the real issue of Genesis 1 and 2 that's very important. It's not so much the how or how long God took to create the world and what six, the space of six days means. But what Genesis 1 and 2 is primarily about is the who. Remember in my, my series on Abraham, and I was talking about Genesis and Exodus, in particular Genesis. And Genesis is written by Moses to first-generation Israel as they're leaving slavery in Egypt. Now, what kind of country was Egypt? It was a pagan country in which Pharaoh himself claimed to be God, in which there was many smaller gods, as much and as many countries without even ancient societies have had, as they have one god, many gods, and they have different realms. The main proposition of Genesis 1 and 2 is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Scriptures, the God in Exodus 3 who says, My name is I Am, my name is Yahweh, that is the God who made all things. There is no other gods that have realms in this world. He is the one who made the sea and the stars and the land. He is over the rain, over everything. That's the main proposition that Israel needs to get, and that's the main proposition that we need to get. That is an important one. What the Apostles' Creed very clearly states is that the one, the maker of the heaven and earth, is God the Father Almighty. It is the God that we read about from Genesis to Revelation. It is the who who made it all that is so important. And this idea, what we're talking about in the Apostles' Creed, is what we believe. It is important, brothers and sisters, to believe that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 11, the great passage on faith and belief, says this, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Now, why do you have to hold that by faith? Because you weren't there. And God's word has simply said that he created all that is. He is the maker of heavens and earth, Genesis 1.1. And therefore, if you believe God's word, you have to believe that he is the creator of all things. Now, when you believe truth, when you believe this truth, it means something significant. And this is where I want to go this morning. I want to talk this morning about the significant meaning, the great importance and significance it is for your life that God, the Father Almighty, the God of the scriptures, the Alpha and the Omega, is the one who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. And so four points this morning on why it's so, what, what happens and how we should respond because God is the maker of heaven and earth. First point is this. Well, for those of you that like a skeletal outline at the front end, I'll give it to you, the, all four points right here. God, because God is the maker of the heavens and the earth, 
First, we should worship Him. Second, we enjoy His creation. Third, we work for His purposes. And fourth, we can have hope. Begin with number one, because God is the maker of the heavens and the earth. We worship Him. I don't know that there's anything more clear in all the Scriptures than that because God is the Creator, He deserves our worship. In fact, there is almost nothing more natural than to respond to the idea that God is the maker of all that is when you look at the flowers, when you look at microbiology, when you look at other human beings, when you stand before the Grand Canyon or before the oceans, and for you to say, the creator of this is awesome. And that is the response of all the scriptures. Everywhere you look, you can't hardly go a few pages in the scriptures without some aspect saying, Almighty, how incredible, how awesome is our maker and our creator. We, saw, we talked about it this morning. Psalm 98 does it. Psalm 8 does it. Psalm 33 does it. Nehemiah 9 does it. All over the place, it is assumed that God's creatures are worshiping the Him. And not only is it assumed, assumed in, in the inherently create creation and God's creatures are doing this, it is also commanded that we as His creatures worship Him as the Creator. Psalm 95 verses 5 and 6 says this, O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. That's a command. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Psalm 148, 1-5 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun, moon. Praise Him all you shining stars. Praise Him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. We sang that this morning, all creatures of our God and King. That's essentially Psalm 148. This isn't simply true for the Psalms and for the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament as well. Paul, as a main part of his evangelistic message, when he goes into Gentile pagan nations, as he says, God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, and Jesus is the revelation of this God. He is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He does this in Acts 14 and in Acts 17 when he talks to the Athenians at Mars Hill. Paul uses it as a great evangelistic tool, and we also see it in Revelation 4 at the very end of the Scriptures, that still God is the maker and creator is the reason why we should worship Him. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Even after all that God does, All the heavens, the hosts of heavens are still looking back to when God created and they're saying he is worthy of worship for what he did. From open to close, the scriptures, we are commanded to worship our God as the creator and we are beckoned. We are beckoned by all the rest of creation. By the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the trees and the ocean, we are beckoned to come and worship our maker. The command is everywhere that God is the creator and inherently means that he deserves our worship. And he deserves our worship, first and foremost, because as the creator and maker, he owns everything. Therefore, we should worship him. Since he is the creator and we are his created beings, we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon him. Therefore, we should worship him as the ones who depend upon him. And as the creator, what has he done in creation? Psalm 19 says that all God's creation, it reveals his glory. John Calvin says this, that the world that God created is the theater of God's glory. Simply quoting from Psalm 19. The world that you live in is the great drama of God's glory being displayed on everything. Now listen, the call here, and we could stop here, 
The call here, when you go out into the world and you see the world around you, is to worship your God and your maker. But I simply just want to command you, I want to try to elicit praise from you this morning, and therefore we need something beautiful. I'm going to give you a lot of C.S. Lewis this morning. We'll start here. The Magician's Nephew. You ever read The Magician's Nephew? If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia series, this is actually the last one he wrote, I believe. It's the last of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia series, but it's actually, he's giving the creation account of Narnia. It's a parallel account. He's essentially trying to envision the, the, God's creating the earth. And so what, he's, what goes on to the magician's nephews, there's a group of people led by a young man named Diggory who have been transported from our earth into this another dimension called Narnia. But Narnia hasn't been brought into its shape and its form yet. And it's just darkness. And here's where we pick up. Bear with me. This is a lengthy quote. Really long quote. Maybe close your eyes and take it in. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and they found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes they thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words, though. There was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise they had ever heard. It was so beautiful they could hardly hear it. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you can possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, and silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment they had been but darkness, but the next moment a thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, and planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. And if you had seen it and heard it as they did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves who were singing. And that it was the first voice, the deep one, which made them appear and made them sing. The voice on the earth was now louder and more triumphant, but the voices in the sky, after singing loudly with it for a time, began to get fainter. And now something else was happening. Far away and down near the horizon, the sky began to turn gray. A light wind, very fresh, began to stir. The sky in that one place grew slowly and steadily paler. You could see shapes of hills standing up against it. All the time, the voice went on singing. The eastern sky changed from white to pink and from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. They had never seen such a sun. You can imagine that the sun laughed for joy as it came up. And as its beams shot across the land, these travelers could see for the first time what sort of place they were in. It was a valley through which a broad, swift river wound its way, flowing eastward towards the sun. Southward there were mountains, northward there were lower hills, but it was a valley of mere earth, rock and water. There was not tree, not bush, not a blade of grass to be seen. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself. And then you forgot everything else. It was a lion, huge, shaggy, and bright. It stood facing the risen sun. Its mouth was open in song. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun. A gentle, rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. 
It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling the grass. The other animals did not appear to be afraid, though. All the animals that this lion had created, indeed at that very moment, they heard the sound of hooves from behind, and now for the first time, the lion was quite silent. He was going to and fro from the animals, and the beasts were now utterly silent, all their eyes fixed intently upon this lion. The lion, whose eyes never blinked, stared at the animals as hard as if he was going to burn them up with his mere stare. And the lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath that seemed to sway all the beasts as the winds sway a line of trees. Far overhead from behind the veil of blue sky, which hid them, the stars sang again, a pure, cold, difficult music. Then there came a swift flash like fire, but it burned nobody, either from the sky or from the lion himself, and every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, Narnia, awake. Love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. End quote. The Bible says that the perfect, that the memory of that perfect world that is described there in Narnia is imprinted on our hearts. And we cannot escape the imprinting of hearing the song. C.S. Lewis once again said this. He said, remote music that we are born remembering is always singing on our hearts. Does that story make you want to worship? Are you worshiping your maker and your creator? What is your reaction when you stand before the Grand Canyon or before the oceans? How do you, how do you test your heart when you hear those things? When you read Genesis 1, when you read the accounts of the Psalms that talk about how great and majestic the creator God is, Here's a test for your heart. If you step out and you're in some place gloriously beautiful, incomprehensibly beautiful, what does your heart do? See, in my, in my college experience, I remember there was a time and a season in my life where I was just on fire for the Lord and my heart was worshiping. I remember taking long walks on the beach by myself. Long walks on the beach by myself at night where the soft glow of the, of the moon washed over the, over the beaches and over the ocean. And we're walking across the the intercoastal water, along the intercoastal waterway, waterway, and every time I was in those places, I had to worship. I had to pray. I had to sing praises to my God. But then there was a season in my life when I was not walking with the Lord so closely. And I remember going out to the Grand Canyon, and I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, I looked out, and I was frustrated, and I was angry, because I knew there's, I, I, I reached a point I could not understand the greatness of my God, but I was not led to worship. I knew there was something wrong with my heart. And so, let me ask you this. After your awesome lunch with your mom today, maybe you get back on the back porch and you look out over your garden and over your house or you go someplace beautiful or you go to the greenway. When you go outside, when you walk through this test, does my heart want to sing when I see God's creation? Or do I just feel dead inside? If you feel dead, if you feel dead, if that's the experience you have internally, would you ask him to make you want to sing, to make you want to worship. 
in point one. Because he is the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, we worship him. Second, because God is the maker of heaven and earth, we enjoy his creation. Theologically, there is something really, really important to see about you and about all creation that's stated. And it's stated over and over and over again in Genesis 1. And that is that God's creation is good. Every day, at the end of every day, each of the first six days of creation in Genesis 1, God gets to the end of it and he says it is good. And then when he makes Adam and Eve, makes man and woman, he says that not just that it is good, he says it is very good. For some of you that might need the redneck theological handbook as to what's being communicated here, this is what's being said. God don't make no junk. When God makes something, it is beautiful and it is good. What we see in the Psalms and what we see throughout all of Scripture, that even in its broken state, even its broken state, it says in the Psalms that all creation is still worshiping the Lord and His beauty and gloriousness. Even in its broken state. Can you imagine what it was like in its perfected state? Or its pre-fall state? God is the creator of the material world. And he loves the material world. And the material world worships him. This physical world. We're not just trying to escape this place. Now this is a point that is radically different than almost every other religion that is out there in the world. Here, Eastern religions, Eastern religions primarily, what they view the world as is they don't view it as real. It's an illusion. And then when we die, we simply drop into the, the, the ethereal big ocean of godness. The world that we live in isn't even real in their, in, their, in their worldview. The other, though, in the Western view, beginning with the Greco-Roman world, it viewed the physical world as bad. Their perspective was there was a dualism, is that our souls are good and our physical bodies and the world around us is bad. Now, what this led to in early Christian theology is there began to be cults and sects, primarily known as Gnosticism, in which they had this perspective, that we need to care for our bodies, and it went two, two different ways. And they would say, because the physical world is bad, we should not take part of marital physical union, we should not take part in good food and good drink, we do just enough to keep us alive physically, and that is it. We're waiting for our spirits to be removed from these nasty physical bodies. That's one perspective. It was called asceticism. They'd live in caves, and they would beat their bodies. But the other direction some people that were were Gnostics went, it was they would say, well, if all that matters is my soul, then I can do whatever I want with my body. It doesn't matter. And so they would engage themselves in gross sexual sin and gross sort of debauchery. Because to them, it didn't matter what you do with the physical. It was all just going to go away anyways. And all that matters is that internally with your soul, you worship God. It's neither way in the Scriptures. What we see is that God loves the material world. He created the material world good. And what we see is throughout, not only does he say it's good, but what happens? God enters into the material world, doesn't he? Jesus didn't fake taking on a body. He actually took on a physical body. Even a broken one that can die. That's the body he took on. During Jesus' earthly ministry, did he just walk by those who were dying and those who were hurting? No, he healed physical bodies. He put food in physical stomachs. He actually cares about the material world. When he looked upon the brokenness around him, he wept because it matters to him. Jesus' earthly ministry in his post-resurrection state, does he come back simply as a ghost? He can go through walls, yes, but that's not because he's not physical. What we see is that he's very physical. He has the wounds in which the disciples can stick their fingers into the wounds from the cross. But what we see is he is not less physical. He is more physical. He's so physical that a wall looks like nothing compared to how glorious he is. 
When we go to heaven, do you know that when we go to heaven, the first thing that will happen when we go to heaven is God's going to reunite your body and your soul. You know what the second thing we're going to do? We're going to sit down for a meal. A physical meal with real wine and real food. It's going to be glorious food, and we're going to be in glorious bodies. But God cares about the material. And so we should enjoy it. Heresies such as Gnosticism and their negative view of the world is consciously, though, and aggressively destroyed in the early Christian creeds. There's a, the Apostles' Creed, just, we'll just take the one that we've been walking through. The Apostles' Creed, for instance, goes out of its way to proclaim the theological value of the material, physical world. First, it says, like we see today, is God made the world. Second, Jesus was born from a woman with a physical body. Second, he has a physical resurrection. And then fourth, it talks about the, the resurrection from the dead that you and I will have. They're directly contradicting these views. It says the, the body, the earth, these things are to be just pushed aside. They're not very important. The call for us is to enjoy creation. Did you know that the first imperative that's in Genesis 1 is behold. Look upon the beauty of what God has done. Take it in and enjoy it. This is the call for you as Christians. In a sense, in a sense, we should be the most materialistic people in the world. In the best sense of that word. We should appreciate the material, physical world more than anybody else. Now there's two flaws, though, that comes to enjoying God's created world. Two flaws. Two different flaws that divert in two different directions. First is the pagan or secular or non-religious approach to the creation. And that is to value and to enjoy the creation over the creator. To value creation and end there. To not let your love and enjoyment of what God has made cause you to go worship the one who has made it all. Again, C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. The beauty was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. If they are mistaken for the thing itself, though, the things that our hearts really long for, then they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself that we long for. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune that we have not heard, and the news from a country that we have not yet visited. What Lewis is saying there is if you, all you want to do is appreciate this physical world and enjoy it, and don't, don't through that enjoy the beauty of your creator, you're stopping short and it's going to kill you. You were meant in all things to worship the Lord. This is why... This is why when we read magazines or we see magazines and it's giving us sexuality, we are a frustrated society in regards to this issue. Because it prom- we, what we are being promised is this, this is nirvana if you get this. And it's not. It is meant to point you to your creator. We'll go back to that in a second. That's the pagan secular approach. Second, there's a religious and moral approach though to enjoying God's creation. And that's this. And what has dominated for many, many years to go back to the ascetic approach of the Gnostics is this. Don't taste, don't feel, don't touch. Way too many Christians have a perspective of the world and of the things of the world and they say, don't touch that, don't enjoy that. This is flawed and frankly it's disobedient. If God's material world makes God happy, then we should be happy with God's material world. We should enjoy God's material world. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes this incredible, beautiful creation. This gorgeous place. 
you can imagine the most gorgeous mansion with the most incredible dance floor. And God is dancing on it. And then he makes you and us, you and me, man and woman. And he says, come and delight in what I've made with me. Come delight in my created world with me. That's what we're called to do. Now, there's only one restriction that he gave Adam and Eve, wasn't it? When he brought them into the garden and said, come dance with me. Was one restriction was don't eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One restriction. This is not a God who started with a ton of rules for us. This is not a God who likes to push all your fun down and not let you enjoy things. No. He said, enjoy everything in my creation except for this one thing that shows that you delight in me more than my creation. But what does Eve do? When Eve falls, the, 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 the serpent comes and tempts her. And she goes beyond God's word. She said, God has told us not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say they couldn't touch it. They could play in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if they really wanted to. They just weren't supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What has she done? She has taken God's word and she has added to it with man's words. This is seen, and Paul goes after this in Colossians 2. Let me hear this from Colossians 2, verses 20 and 21. If, Christ, with, if with Christ you died in the elementary spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Going down to verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. An appearance of wisdom. You see, many of the people, good, wonderful Christians, when, they, when we talk about certain drinking or eating certain things or enjoying certain things in this world, we'll say, it's just not wise. It's just better if you just stay far away from it. They're adding to the scriptures. They're adding man-made wisdom. And what Paul says here, what he says in verse 23 is this, is that it has the appearance of wisdom, but it's self-made man religion. There is no value, it says, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But here's what our legalistic, moralistic hearts say. We say, thus saith the Lord, to things that God has not said, thus saith the Lord. We add to God's word. And therefore, you put yourself actually in the place in the role of God. This is a significant flaw. Tim Keller calls this the negative will of God theory. Where we have this perspective as Christians is that God simply just does not want us to have fun and enjoy things. So that if we, if we look at our life and we're going, what's God's will for my life in this area? Our assumption is that if we have one thing that would be really enjoyable and one thing that would not be enjoyable, we go, God wants us to not have fun. We're going to go the path of no enjoyment. That is, that's how we think so often. What's the way in which I can suffer the most? Now listen, brothers and sisters, we should be on mission. We should have a warrior mentality. But God has not said that you just do everything that's super painful. That's a martyr complex. And we are not called to have a martyr complex. So Christians, here's the call for you. We should be the most materialistic people there are. We should enjoy the world, the earth, rightly and wisely. We should get out, we should rest, and we can enjoy, and we should worship when we go out in God's creation and we enjoy God's creation. Think about how good God is that even in a broken world, he's given you things like, in marriage, physical union. One of the most pleasurable things in all the world God has given us to us to help procreate and to help do exactly what he's called us to do, which is to fill the earth with children. That's a good God. That's a God who likes enjoyable things. So invite good friends over. For a good meal and good drink, whether that's sweet tea or something else. Enjoy God's creation. Now understand this. I'm going to just say one thing about wisdom real quick. The Proverbs talk about multiple times over and over again about things like wine. Do not get drunk on wine. But it also says the reward of a wise man is that he gets to have a bounty of wine. 
So let's stay within the parameters that God has given us. And let's not go beyond the wisdom of God. You are not smarter and you're not wiser than God. He has a whole book of wisdom literature. A whole book. A whole book. You don't need to add to it, brothers and sisters. He said, do not get drunk. That is the parameter here. He says, enjoy my creation here. And it's somewhere in there that you get to live. Enjoy God's creation. Don't add to God's laws. And don't add to God's wisdom because you're not smarter than him. You see, it's unwise to add to God's laws and God's wisdom. You're not taking part of things that God says to enjoy and to worship him. Your goal and your aim should be to enjoy these things for the worship of God. Now, let me talk to my generation. Because the, the, what I just said was maybe for an older generation. Let me talk to my generation. God has still not said, don't get drunk on wine. Don't overspend your money. There is Proverbs there for your value and for your good. And don't let your freedom lead you to folly, as I've seen many of you do. Enjoy God's creation with the boundaries in which he has given it to us. It's for your good. Third, because God is the maker of heaven and earth, we work for his purposes. Did you know that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God has declared meaning and purpose and significance over you. We are not just the product of a bunch of random forces put on earth to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We are put on earth for a purpose, for a mission. And the mission, it is extended into the Great Commission, but it begins in Genesis 1. Pick up in verse 26 along with me. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, this is called the cultural creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You are made in the image of God. And we have a creator God. He makes things beautiful. He cares for things. And as his image bears, you too are to make things beautiful and to care for this earth. This is called a creation or cultural mandate. That this is what you're supposed to be doing with your life. Would you expand the gardens, expand the goodness of God's creation to the ends of the earth. And as long as we, we are to regard ourselves as an extension of God's intentionality and creative work in this place. This means using your time, your talents, your resources to create beauty, to create structures, to create power systems in which to have dominion and dynasty in a kind and good and compassionate way over this earth. That's the role that God has given us. And this is not simply true in the pre-fall world. Because some people will say, well, that was, that was our role. Now we just have to survive and get through this earth. But even the post-fall state, all through Genesis, we see God keeps giving you the same command to be fruitful and multiply. He says it to Noah three times. Noah, in Genesis 8.17, Genesis 9.1, and Genesis 9.7. He says, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Isaac blesses Jacob, and he gives him the same instruction. God shows up to Jacob in Genesis 35, and he says this. And it sounds like the Apostles' Creed. He says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. And then in Jeremiah 23, 23, which is talking about the new covenant, about the new covenant, about the coming, it talks about a coming righteous branch, gives this beautiful vision of a righteous branch that's going to come, and that righteous branch is Jesus. 
And he says, when that righteous branch comes, all people from all the nations will be drawn to this righteous branch. And when they do so, they will be fruitful and they will multiply. Then we get to Matthew 28. And the Great Commission is, go therefore to all nations, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. It fits right along with the be fruitful and multiply call. That we be physically dominant and have dynasty over this world. That we have children for the kingdom purposes, but we also have spiritual children and we make disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the call throughout the scriptures. And so now what are we doing? Adam and Eve were supposed to take the beauty of the garden and they were to expand it out and they were to create and have dominion and dynasty over the whole earth. What do we do in a broken world? The same thing. We just have to do it in the context of brokenness. Which means, brothers and sisters, we are to go in a broken world and we are to mend the broken places. Where there is not beauty, we are to bring beauty. Where there is tears, we are to bring joy, the joy of the gospel. I want you to see two things about what this means, about your work for his purposes this morning. And the first is this. That mean, this means that we should, be, we should be about being creation rebuilders. We should be about being creation rebuilders. If you believe in the doctrine of creation, not only should we be enjoyers of God's nature, but we should be incredible, have incredible, incredible pursuits about making this world which is broken, restored. We should go into places like rundown neighborhoods and we should make them beautiful for the glory of God. We should take our houses which have weeds, our, our yards which have weeds, and we should make gardens. This is a sign that the kingdom of God is coming. Again, one more thing about, from C.S. Lewis. One more quote from him. He says this. This is what the Christians should, their, their perspective. He said, when confronted with a cancer or a slum, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, and that space and time and heat and cold and all the colors and tastes and animals and vegetables are things that God made as a man makes up a good story. But Christianity also, also thinks that there are a great many things that are wrong with this world. That God made and that God insists, and God insists very loudly on putting all these broken things right again. This is the call to you, brothers and sisters. To make disciples... But in so doing, we're going to have a larger vision of bringing this world back under his authority and to beautify it and redeem it once again. To the degree that you understand the doctrine of creation and embrace that he is the maker of heaven and earth, you will value the call and the charge to bring broken places in this world under his authority and to make them beautiful, worshiping sections of creation once again. And listen, I want to be gentle here because this is a flaw of mine as well, but I don't know when it got into conservative Christianity that we don't care about the earth. I don't know when that got into our system. I don't know where it came from, but I don't understand why we care more about corporate earnings than we care about keeping the earth beautiful. There's a tension there, but we have to put more thought than simply, oh, well, forget the whales and forget the Arctic. We should actually go probably listen to some scientists. I don't know when we got to the point where we can't listen to a single scientist anywhere ever unless they say that the earth is just going to burn up, so the hell with it anyways. It's not just going to burn up. Did you know that heaven comes here? You're doing things at your work that matter. That brings us to our second point. Second point, that if God has created you with a purpose to do his work in this world, to have dominion and dynasty, it means whatever your work is in this world, it matters. You know, in Corinthians, it says, do all things for the glory of God. That's just not a trite saying. That's been what God has been saying since the very beginning, which means that men, if you're engineers, if you're architects, if you're teachers, women, if you go to work 
all these things that you do are for the glory of God. Women who are doing counseling and who are engineers and who are math teachers, women who are staying home and changing poopy diapers, this is for God's kingdom. Changing a poopy diaper is making your house more beautiful. (laughs) It is a good thing. Good sewage systems is a good thing. We are bringing this world back into good order. And this is what God has called us to do, to use and to view everything we do in this world for his glory and for his honor, to have dominion over this earth, to treat the earth kindly and to care for it, to rule over it. It means what you do for 40 to 50 hours a week, it actually matters. It doesn't simply matter what you do here and what you do at home when you lead your family in devotions. It matters when you farm and when you teach and when you do engineering. So the question for, for you is, are you enjoying the world? And are you doing things that are, are you involved in things that are making the world a better place? See, for too long, Christians have had what we call the sacred-secular divide. In which you see what we do on Sunday as, as sacred, but what we do during the rest of the week is secular. Now, there's not a sacred-secular divide. That's abolished. There is no sacred-secular divide. There's a sacred and a profane and too often in our world, what we have done is we have profaned the things that God has called good. It's a reason why I cannot use a three-letter word that begins with S in my sermons. Marital union, which God said is good, we have now turned into a bad word. Now let me ask you this. Who has ingrained more of the earth's truth? Those who can't stand it when we use those words? Are those who use those words and say God made it for us to worship him and he calls it good. When you think those words as simply being mere crass and dirty and things we shouldn't talk about in church and good church moral folks don't talk about these things, you've actually, in, you've let the world affect you. You have a perspective that it's profane. It's not. God said it's good within the right formats. And so enjoy God's creation. Work for God's good work in in God's purposes in this world with whatever you do. Well, we see that we're supposed to worship him, we're supposed to enjoy, and we're supposed to work for God's purposes. But if we, that's all what's told us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But Genesis 3 comes along, doesn't it? It says we now live in a broken world where in Romans 1 it says instead of worshiping God, we now worship his creation. That instead of enjoying God, we enjoy all the other things in this world above him. The fall also says that instead of working for his purposes and for his glory on this earth, we now do everything for us. We parent, we do marriage, we do work, all for the glory of ourselves. This is the fall. But does God leave his broken world to itself? Does he say, forget it? No. God comes and engages with this world. How do we know? God loves the material world and he comes to save the material world. And we know that because God sent his son into the material world, Jesus Christ. And what has he done? We can have hope, brothers and sisters, that God is, because God is the maker of the heavens and earth. And that we can have hope because that means he owns it all. And that means he cares about the world. And so he sent his son to enter into this world, to take on physical flesh, to enter into the unraveling and the brokenness of this world so that he might redeem it. John 3.16, which everybody in this world probably knows because of baseball games. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That word world in John 3.16 is the word cosmos. Cosmos is referring to the physical world. God came to save the worlds. That's what the Greek word is communicating there. 
You see, you'll never work for the good of this world. You'll never enjoy the world rightly in the bounds of wisdom as God has given it to us. And you'll never worship your creator as you ought until you see how much God loves you and loves you as his creation and loves the world that he has made. That he was willing to come to the cross and be unraveled physically just as this world is being unraveled. So that then he can be resurrected from the dead and do what? Make a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 says we are God's new creation, created in him for good works. That is a beautiful truth. And that means for the rest of our lives, what your purpose is in enjoying God's creation and working for his purposes for the glory and worship of his name is to lead all of creation in a pilgrim processional towards heaven, worshiping our great creator and maker. And God said this is exactly what he's doing in this earth, and he will achieve his purposes through you. Revelation 21, at the very end of all things, what does it say? 21 verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There will be no more crying or tears or brokenness or pain. That is the mission that God has us on. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And we our call now is to enter into a broken world that is groaning, as God says in Romans 8, with the mission of bringing it back under, God, under submission to God's rule and to lead all creation in the worship of our maker. This is your call and your mission, brothers and sisters. Let's enter into it, and let's pray for God to help us. Gracious God, we thank you that you don't make junk, that you've made people in your image, that you value the earth. And gracious God, we thank you so much that as we look around our world and we see the brokenness and we see the pain and we see the, see the brokenness in our own bodies and we can see the beauty sometimes and sometimes all we see is the brokenness and the sin and the terror. But we thank you, God, that you entered in, that you broke in, that you took on flesh, that you became unraveled so that the world that you've made can be made new once again. We look forward to that day when you will make all things new. Gracious God, I pray that you would give us enormous hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that hope would send us out into the world, into our workplaces to do work well. That would send us to our children to make disciples. That we would have see the value of what you have called us to do at every hour of every day. And Lord, I pray that in enjoying your world, we would worship you and worship you rightly and profoundly. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.